0: The following is a production of the Truth Exchange podcast and is made possible through the financial contributions of listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about this series, The State of Our Disunion, or how you can financially partner with us today, please visit us at truthexchange.com. Let me just say at the outset, I'm extremely delighted to be contributing to this important symposium sponsored by Truth Exchange. Dr. Jones's work has been prophetic as well as as foundational and I'm eager to hear the contributions of the other fellows and scholars. My particular contribution will focus on national disunion as it's related to law and public policy. And I want to end with an emphasis on going forward. How is it that we can uh, retrench ourselves to a faithful politics, a faithful law, so that we can go forward in fidelity? And this will require us to, in many ways, recalibrate and reorient our thinking. How so? By freshly probing the relationships between creed and conduct, between faith and policy between theology and ethics. Yet we must do this in context and given today's various landscapes, both cultural and ecclesiastical, it won't always be pretty to understand the state of our disunion. However, we must understand what's underneath and what's animating this cultural uh, disunion. Accordingly, I first want to address briefly law and culture in the relationship there, and then I want to focus on faithful politics as a proposed solution, a solution rooted in reality that uh, stems from our creed that will impact our conduct, including law and public policy. A number of years ago, there was a quite successful marketing campaign that that chimed in. Tastes great, less filling. Tastes great, less filling. This was an ad campaign by a particular beer company, and it proposed to answer the question, Why do we have to have a great tasting beer that produces a beer belly? In other words, can something taste great and, in fact, be less filling? Can we actually do that? Do they go together? Can we put them together? Well, law and culture uh, actually is a bit that way, and we want to spend some time trying to understand how these things go together, uh, because it's not law against culture. To understand this, though, we need to understand uh, our expectations, the plausibility narratives, the plausibility structures, the notion of moral imagination, paradigms, as well as permissions and boundaries. All of this uh, really feeds into what counts as facts, what is possible, and what is permissive. Here's what I mean. Until 1954, no one thought a human can run the mile in under four minutes until Roger Bannister at Oxford actually did it. Similarly, a number of years later, no one thought anyone could free Solo, climb up El Capitan without the assistance of ropes and all that sort of thing until Alex Arnold did it uh, as well. Question, did the track change its length in 1954? Question, did El Capitan somehow change the granite? No. What changed was the plausibility narratives that granted permission for these gentlemen to do something that was, uh, until they did it, thought to be impossible. And the same happens with respect to law and culture. I want us to show this by focusing on a 1927 Supreme Court opinion called Buck versus Bell. In that decision, the honored Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote uh, in addressing this question, could a state coercively force sterility on certain humans because they were simply um, not desired to uh, populate? And in ruling that in fact, it was constitutional to sterilize uh, humans, he made a fourfold argument. First, he needed to understand that he had grown up as a Civil War veteran, and he did not like to see pain and suffering in the culture. Secondly, he invoked utilitarian outcomes in his legal reasoning, saying essentially that society should, where possible, minimize strain drain and pain on the population. Third, uh, using the court, he insisted that there are certain people that, quote, sap the strength of the state, and we ought to figure ways to minimize that or eliminate that aspect. And then finally, he went on doing this utilitarian thing, telling us that three generations of imbeciles is enough, and thus affirmed the sterilization of Carrie Buck. Case closed. The culture and the law have spoken. Now, culture is religion externalized and it matters who shall we say preaches the homilies in a cultural situation. Is it the dear leader as in North Korea? Is it the central party as in China? Is it Fox News or CNN? Is it the nation or the national review? Or in this instance, is it the highest court in the land? This tells us that there are animating principles that transmit ideas in the culture, and this influences the plausibility narratives. I like to call these the robes of culture, and there are basically three, the legal robes, the clerical and religious robes, and the academy robes. Uh, The legal robes enforce norms, the clerical robes either condemn or absolve certain kinds of matters, and the academy oftentimes sets forth, defines norms. Here's the point. Robes inform their own disciplines, whether law or the university, but they also have a currency within the broader culture. They are conduits with respect to that. So we need to understand what is culture. There's been a lot of great studies recently on this notion. It's a complicated question. Bill Edgar, for example, has written a very important book on this. But the reality is this. Creation is what God does, and culture is what mankind does as well. And if that's the case, then we can conclude that law is in fact a species of culture. It does not stand opposed to culture, rather it emanates from the culture. Mankind is created by God, mankind is inherently religious as well, which means that It's mankind's cultural endeavors will also be religious and carry a moral uh, mandate within whatever cultural things that we do. As one man put it, ideas do not make their way in history except they be carried by persons and institutions. They're inherently uh, religious with respect to that. Okay. Now, we need to understand that these, this alchemy, if you will, that's in the culture influences at various levels our loves, our longings, our loyalties, our labors, our liturgies, our, our rhythms of life, and one more L, our law. Positive law is also cultural because it's what mankind does, and thus it is not separate from culture. It too shapes our expectations, our plausibility narratives and so forth. Now here's three implications when we talk about law and this factors into our disillusion. Number one, law is therefore never neutral. It is always a conduit for a prior moral choice or commitment. And the scripture Psalm 94 makes this very clear. Second, law is also pedagogical. It's a teaching device. Romans chapter 7 makes this also apparent. And third, law as culture affects the greater culture because it informs and functions in several cultural roles. Put simply, the law is a mirror, it is a muzzle, and it is a map. It sets up a comparative standard as a mirror, asking, do I measure up? It either unleashes or constrains by withholding permissions. In other words, will society ignore, permit, forbid, or mandate X or Y? And lastly, it is a map. It diagrams the way of being right. And so law has a cultural functions, and we need to understand it. So getting back to Buck versus Bell, how did these, these things go together? Well, Uh, What generated Buck versus Bell, the sterilization case? We were living in a eugenics culture that was promoted both by the progressives and by the conservatives, including professing Christians like Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt. They believed in eugenics. Uh, They believed in social Darwinism and so forth. Interestingly enough, from 1907 to 1918, over 3,000 humans were involuntarily sterilized. And then from 1912 until 1921, eight states said this is wrong, and they, they uh, engaged in lawsuits to get rid of these forced sterilization statutes, and they won seven out of eight times. Then came Buck versus Bell, which was a setup case in Virginia that ultimately federalized this issue. After 1927, when Buck was decided, two years within that time, 12 more states, because they'd been granted permission from Justice Holmes and the Supreme Court, uh, uh, 12 more states passed these kinds of bills. And then Uh, Three years after that, there were more uh, states that did that, 10 states after that, and then 28 states after that. Law is a cultural conduit, and this is exactly what happened. Well, now, fast forward. In 1930, the Lambeth Conference, which is an Anglican, worldwide Anglican conference, said that we are going to permit in certain situations uh, contraception. Now, I'm not taking a position on this. I just want to show you how culture and law go together. That was in 1930. In 1960, we had uh, the invention of chemical contraception, uh, known as the pill. Five years later, the Supreme Court uh, in Griswold got into the act, and what did they say? Well, here's my point. I wanna talk about this line of cases, both in terms of the legal message and its cultural message. Griswold's legal message was this. States may not forbid access to contraception to married couples. This federalized the issue. But what was Griswold's cultural message? It was this, the procreative aspect of human sexuality may be properly and permissibly separated from the unitive aspect of sexuality. That was the win. And interestingly enough, the advocate in Griswold, one day after the hearing said, we now have the basis for attacking the anti-abortion statutes. And so they went forward. 1975 years later, we see the no-fault divorce scheme coming into play. The legal message was permission is granted to divorce unilaterally for any reason or no reason at all, irrespective of the other spouse's consent or the instigator's prior moral commitment. But the cultural message of no-fault divorce was that man may separate what God has joined. 1972, we see the contraception case coming to the court, Eisenstadt, which said legally, states may not forbid access to contraception of fornicating couples. Here you have people coming together in opposition to God's law and the court saying, yeah, they can have access to contraception. But what is the cultural message? Fornication now becomes one equally valid option among many for sexual expression. Commitment concerning marriage of sexual expression is simply optional. It is simply aspirational at best. And that leads one year later to Roe versus Wade. If you think of these decisions as bricks, Roe becomes the cornerstone, which of course legalized abortion in the United States. And so abortion can occur because of some notion of privacy, the court invented this right. But what's the cultural message? The cultural message of Roe was that children result from some form of failure, whether of planning or of technology. Fertility becomes pathology and choice now becomes the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate determiner of one's ethics. That's a big deal. We go forward 19 years to uh, the Casey decision where the court again affirmed the core holding of Roe, but changed the rationale. It became not a privacy interest, that is to say dealing with a couple, but now a personal liberty interest, using this as the rationale. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, Of the universe and of the mystery of human life. That sounds like the theme song to Frozen. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, I'm free, let it go. And so here we see now Casey setting the predicate that it's a personal liberty interest. What's the implication? Well, we see that just a few years later in the Romer decision uh, that um, the idea is, I have a freedom and a legally imposed dignity to engage in all sorts of sexual expression and a state may not take a stand saying that the creational norm of one man, one woman is the place for sexuality. There is no, in the court's mind, rational basis for prescribing sexuality outside heterosexuality. And so this becomes a notion of it's simply animus to address same-sex behavior, which of course then set the predicate a few years later in 2003 uh, for uh, constitutionalizing the right to sodomy, Lawrence versus Texas, the legal message, no state may ban same-sex sodomy as the only rationale for such bans would be animus. This again federalizes the issue, expanding the role of the state. What's the cultural message in Lawrence? Morality plays no role with respect to legal ethics. Rather, choice and autonomy are supreme. Really teasing out what Casey talked about there. We've heard it over and over, love is love. Consequently, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act was partly struck down, leading to the open door of a burgerfeld in 2015, where the court again federalized and constitutionalized same sex marriage. What's the legal rationale? Marriage must be constitutionally uh, def- defined to include same sex couples as a law enforced dignity. Notice dignity comes from a declaration of positive law, not an inherent uh, virtue by virtue of the creational norm. And then what did Obergefell do with respect to culture? It said marriage is no longer natural or pre-political in any relevant sense, and thus concepts like family, husband, father, wife, mother are merely legal. They are legal constructions. Well, this is a problem at that point, which then led to what? 2019, the House passes. Uh, the the, uh, Equality Act recently just passed again by the House in the new administration. This is a so-called SOGI law, sexual orientation, gender identity law, Causes some problems. As Nancy Piercy tells us, the long-term impact of SOGI laws will be even more destructive, however, erasing the legal recognition not only of women, think of sports, wrestlers, track and field, golf, and so forth, but also of the family. Stella Morabito, a writer, former CIA analyst, puts it this way. Once you basically redefine humanity as sexless, you end up with a dehumanized society. There's no real legal mother, father, son, or daughter or husband unless you have the permission of the state. This again expands the power of the state and so forth. The state's role is therefore expanded. It used to be it simply recognized pre-political realities like mother, father, and that sort of thing. Now the state gets to define it. In other words, when gender is denaturalized, parenthood will be denaturalized. This leaves us right back at the second psalm, breaking the bonds of the lord and his anointed let us burst away their bonds and cast away their cords for us this is a form of disorder and so the question i want to address is what's the way forward how can we be faithful in our politics and legal policy well there is a way forward and what is it i want to suggest to you there is a solution and that solution requires us to once again Retrench ourselves to understand number one, our textual orientation. What in fact does the Bible teach? Second of all, our uh, uh, theological orientation. What can we gather from the Christian tradition that will help us? And then what are the ethical implications drawn therefrom and thus the implications for law and public policy? The gist of the solution is this there are and there must be creedal implications for law and public policy because creed impacts worldview, worldview impacts culture, culture impacts ethics, and ethics impacts law and policy. Why? Because law and ethics correlate with theology and doctrine. One man put it this way, whatever is the source of law in the society is that society's God. Another man put it this way. Every social order rests on a creed or a concept of life and law and represents a religion in action. Culture is religion externalized. As Henry Van Til put it, a people's religion comes to expression in its culture. And Christians can be satisfied with nothing less than a Christian organization of the culture. Simply put, law expresses lordship. Or as uh, my friend Jonathan Burnside puts it, law is a backstage pass to theology. And so the solution I'm proposing, the solution to disunion is what I'll simply call faithful politics. I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm talking about being a faith-informed political and legal regime theology rightly understood and rightly calibrated will direct us to ethics and thus law and policy, rightly conceived and rightly applied. It, it works like this, as Tom Wright put it. It is one thing to insist on walking south when the compass is pointing north, but to fix the compass so that it tells you the wrong way is the right way is far, far worse. I want to suggest we need to recalibrate our compasses, understanding the scriptures, understanding our creedal tradition, and then ultimately planning action. And I want to jump off here using as a case study the formula of Chalcedon, which occurred in the 5th century, 451, because it has significant socio-political legal uh, implications. Now at the outset, outset, let me note something. It's so obvious we oftentimes miss it. In the Christian worldview with its creeds and its confessions, the past matters to the present and shapes the future. The past matters to the present and shapes the future. This observation immediately by definition is contrary to the many influences today that are generating our national disunion, our discussions and our disunion. For example, progressivism, critical theory, Critical race theory, BLM.com, Hegel, Marx, cultural Marxism, gender ideology, etc. All these competitors of Christianity promote something that is very and essentially different from the Christian worldview. They promote what I call regeneration by repudiation, that is to say, bulldozing the past, whether on the micro level or on the macro level. But a faithful Christian worldview is decidedly different, and it's a fundamental, basic difference. It's a different worldview, and that will impact, make a different culture, which will impact and make a different ethic, and thus express itself in a very different law and public policy. Memory is a moral um, tutorial, if you will. So let's talk about Chalcedon. The formula of Chalcedon dealt with what's the nature of Christ and the nature of his person, both divine and human. And that formula of Chalcedon sets forth boundaries for orthodoxy as it relates to Christ theology. And in doing so, it helps inform our socio-political ethics. It provides guidance and it provides hope. Hope. It gives us a solution to our disunion. And when it does so, it rules in certain things. And by definition, it rules out certain other things, all of which will help us shape a faithful politics, a faithful law. Now, I'm going to walk through parts of this creed, grabbing parts of it, to show you how this works. So, it begins like this. We then, following the holy fathers, fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect manhood, truly God and truly man. Commentary human nature here is presumed and affirmed and deemed relevant and deemed real. It, the creed goes on to say that this true man has a reasonable or rational soul and body. Let me comment. Mankind in this real nature is and integrated person of both corporeal body and non-corporeal aspects, soul. This is contrary to Gnostic and other dualistic neo-pagan notions that are uh, so prevalent today, as Dr. Jones has taught us. Now compare this with this non-integrated assumption. Gender ideology is a classic example. When you hear things like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, this stems from predicates of a non-Christian worldview that are animated and encouraged by post-modernity, critical race theory, queer studies. These are all fundamentally dualist and fundamentally Gnostic. Why? Because one's identity is purely a matter of either subjectivism or social construction disjoining, not integrating soul and body as the creed teaches. Creed goes on uh, saying that uh, Christ in his manhood is in all things like unto us. Well, this means that human nature is not only affirmed, real, and relevant, but human nature is universal. There exists a robust universal anthropology individually present in every human being, past, present, and future. And this anthropology does not vary as to time, geography, ethnicity, coloration, clan, tribe, etc. Now, this is revolutionary for the time in Western civilization. I'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about the legal implications of that simple phrase in the creed. Why is it that a law passed um, by certain humans can apply and bind humans subsequently, years later, like the First Amendment? And why can law be the basis for equal treatment? Well, because there's a shared universal human nature. And so there's no unfairness with respect to that. Now compare in the past times like segregationists, or Nazis, or Stalinists, or Islamofascists, when they attack and target such people, uh, other people like blacks or Jews, for example. What is it that they ultimately say in their propaganda? They say, well, blacks or Jews are not human, are not people. What is it that the abortionist says today? It's not a baby. Or when you look at research justice, which is a uh, critical race theory notion, the idea that certain people should not be heard because of the clan or the tribe. In other words, their arguments become irrelevant. It's just a matter of picking where they exist and so forth. The point being is that with respect to these competing worldviews, there are no individuals because they deny the universal humanity, the universal anthropology, they must also deny that there are actual individuals. And so they cluster them based upon arbitrary uh, categories. And so we hear things like whites are implicitly biased and racist, even unconsciously so, but blacks cannot be racist, for example. And so we saw this with respect to the Uh, hearings with now Justice uh, Barrett, where uh, Henry Rogers, who goes by a new name, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, saying that her adoption of children, needy children from Haiti, was just a ploy. It had no real meaning. You really can't do that, which is, of course, is just wrong on so many levels. Now, notice this man, uh, who also recently... uh, uh, opposed his own daughter's uh, trans uh, coming out, I guess you'd call it, saying that she's actually a guy. I don't know how he does that because everything he's taught would affirm that. But notice he begins by repudiating on a micro level his very heritage, his very name. He changes his name, uh, which is again, this idea of regeneration by repudiation, but I digress. Let me go back to the creed now. It goes on and talks about Christ as being um, acknowledged in two natures, well, this is important. This explicitly affirms what it had assumed that human nature is directly is a nature can 't be changed it 's designed. This is contrary to Darwinism, which tells us ironically, there is no nature and that embraces naturalism, but it 's also contrary to post modernity, critical theory, critical race theory which is based upon total constructivism, either uh, subjectively, as I said, or socially. It goes on to say that Christ, though he has two natures, is one person. This affirms and again valorizes individual persons without needing to you know, co-brand those persons via clan or tribal affiliations. And thus, this statement implicitly rejects identity politics, tribalism and power differentials, things that are causing great disunity on the left and the right in our nation. Now, again, critical theory and critical race theory denies universals and denies individuals. Rather, under those theories, one's identity uh, in those worldviews is only uh, available in certain predetermined categories, dependent on Uh, a variety of criteria. Basically, it devolves down into the, if you're part of the oppressed, or are you part of the oppressor, based upon the notion of, uh, as Kimberly Trenshaw created, uh, the notion of intersectionality and all that sort of stuff. So it's really, uh, it's typecasting people to victimology. More on that later. So the creed itself gives us a predicate for rejecting uh, what's causing a lot of disunity, and we need to once again affirm those predicates going forward. But I want to take it to one uh, level deeper, exploring the uh, more subtle implications of what Chalcedon has told us. Now, we understand uh, from a biblical narrative, that God Himself has distinctions, though He is one God, there are boundaries and distinctions. That is to say, that's the triune God, one God yet in three persons. And the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and so on and so forth. There are boundaries and distinctions. And then we see God, in His first act, creating a boundary and distinction between the Creator and the creation, something fundamental to what we talk about at Truth Exchange. And then within that creation story, what do we see? We see additional distinctions being made, separations being made, boundaries being made, so on and so forth. Well, that also has sociopolitical implications. Creeds create boundaries. And as Paul Tripp had once noted, It's not a concerto where every note is written out, but it's kind of like more like jazz so that you have a key signature and you get to improvise, but there are certain parameters. And so the Bible doesn't tell us, for example, what car to purchase or what, um, route to take driving. doesn't tell us whom to marry. uh, It does tell us whom to date. It says uh, to ladies, they shall go out with uh, joy. So if your name is Joy, a guy could court you, I suppose. Uh, All that to say is what the Bible really does is it takes moral categories and that should inform our thinking and our conduct. This is similarly in the church with its creeds and confessions. These creeds and confessions do not uh, provide exhaustive explanations uh, for humanly comprehensible ideas of Christ, but they do supply what we do need to believe and hang on to. It supplies boundaries for knowing and understanding and protecting our core orthodoxy. And this core has socio-legal implications. Again, Chalcedon, fifth century, all the branches of the church affirmed this. This applies going forward for everyone who names the name of Christ. Now, I mentioned that this is a revolutionary concept. How so? Let me explain it. The creeds as confessed forms and informs our identity, which was a radical notion at that time in Western civilization. Tom Holland put it this way, That an identity might be defined by belief was in itself a momentous innovation. In addition, he says that the learned and the illiterate alike might be joined by it into one single body was no less startling a notion. And he credits Origen, the church father, for this. Basically, to still down, says, we have here an entire new universe of the mind, one in which even the least educated could share. That is to say, obliterating the notion of identity politics and kind of hyphenated people. Well, the Bible does have a sort of binary, right? Uh, in the sense of you are either in Adam or in Christ. You're in union with Christ, or not in union with Christ. Those those are the binaries that matter with respect to a biblical worldview. Therefore, under the Christian worldview, individuals are defined by individual confession joined by belief, but they're not joined by what Aristotle would call accidental matters. Things like height, weight, ethnicity, coloration, tribe, clan, status, but rather we're defined in our community as individuals of belief. And so the individual integrated person is affirmed in identity as we are also members joined in that confession and profession. Scripture, of course, talks about this, Romans 12, in one body we have many members. So through many, we are one in one body in Christ, individually members of one another. And of course, Galatians 3 does this as well. Again, identity politics doesn't do this. It creates disunion and so forth. Well, what's the application? Chalcedon's predicates, that is to say a faithful Christian confession concerning both humanity and anthropology undermines at a foundational level, including a metaphysical level, uh, the basis of a lot of our disunion, including critical race theory, critical theory, post-modernity, and so forth. Because those competing theories wrongly answer the question, what is humanity? What is mankind? All these theories contribute to national disunion uh, because they embrace a defective anthropology. And that's one way forward that we embrace a true anthropology. The Christian worldview corrects this by valorizing each individual person made in the very image and likeness of God, a way forward. In addition, Chalcedon's formula and its predicates uh, produce implications for law and public policy because it informs us who is lord law expresses lordship the lord is the lawgiver let me give you three basic facets of how this will play out in today in a path forward uh, using faithful politics it informs our policy choices one Chalcedon defeated statism in principle and thereby established the very foundation of Western civilization, that it was predicated on a higher law, a law above the law, the Lord's law. This is what Jesus told Pilate in John chapter 19. He said, you'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And consequently, Jesus As Lord gives uh, this implication as he sets forth boundaries, boundaries of Christ and boundaries of Caesar. Now, with progressivism, critical race theory, and all the like, the state becomes the higher law, the transcendent and highest authority, because in these worldviews, they deny what's called meta-narratives or comprehensive worldviews. Now, they do that by you know, crossing their fingers, but basically there's no boundary to the state in the nature of the case in these competing worldviews. We need a way forward. So what would Chalcedon look like, for example, in a uh, constitutional republic? Well, the notion of the people that give the consent of the governed. Why is that a Christian idea? Because the people hold power under God predicated upon the universal anthropological assumptions. People can consent to have others rule them, but they can't have a tyrant over them. Why? Because of the Imago Day. It's not the state. Or compare that the United States requires a Republican form of government. And that has two meanings historically. Number one, allowing for representation. So you take the consent of the people to be parceled out and delegated to others, which is consistent with the consent of the governed. But the second historical understanding of this idea is that the state has an obligation to promote virtue, forming and incentivizing virtue, key morals, so that all humans and all of society can flourish irrespective of their religious predilections. We don't coerce belief. That's not a Christian view either. That's the first implication, defeating statism. The second implication is that the state, however, is not ignored or disenfranchised, or delegitimated in the Christian worldview. Rather, it's a product of proper boundaries. Now, compare that to two extremes. You have a delegitimization of the state in uh, defeatism, uh, Anabaptist uh, pietism, and all that sort of stuff. But you also have people in in the church today, including the evangelical branch, uh, that want to empower the state. In fact, there was one News story recently of of a church that uh, gave a million dollars to a local school district. Well, wait a minute. The school district was promoting trans things and all that sort of stuff. You're going. That's does that doesn't that seems like taking Christ's treasure and putting it into Caesar's uh, treasury. So Christ's tithe is a better way to put it into Caesar's treasury. That's confused, I think, but. In fact, in a Christian worldview, it defines and delimits legitimate state authority. The rationale is simply this. The Lord of the culture is the lawgiver of the culture. In this case, that Lord is Christ, and he tells the state what it can and cannot do. Therefore, the state's authority in a Christian context is defined by and derived from this higher law, from the Lord, and therefore the state's authority is not plenary, it's not autonomous, it's not totalistic. Well, what would be then the implications going forward? Well, let's look at judicial philosophy. We would want a judiciary that understands separation of powers, boundaries. Judges do this, they don't do that. We would understand that they would have delimited, not plenary authority. We would understand that they would be subject to the rule of law, not making law up. They would interpret law, not create or legislate law. Now we saw this, for example, in the various uh, hearings and you saw these theories going back and forth. But one key implication as well as this, only in Christ do justice and mercy reside together. Uh, but they do not reside together in any instantiated creational entity. And faithful politics must parcel them out and keep the boundaries safe, which rebuts a lot of what we hear today, both in progressive circles and in so-called woke Christian and progressive Christianity circles. There's a blending and a blurring of justice and mercy. Third implication. In creation, the created order, the state plays this legitimate role Uh, But it is a decentralized role. So what that means is that public justice is defined in one way, but it's not mercy. The state exists for justice. It also would implicate a separation of powers. It would be restrained by the rule of law and so forth. The state exists to negatively protect, that is to say, create space for Pre-political, natural, or inherent rights—not to positively confer rights status on things that are simply needs or even desires. Well, that's interesting. Where's the laundry? Well, we know what the laundry list is here uh, because we can look at the history. So, what are some of the things the state should protect negatively, prevent people from uh, interfering with? Life, liberty, non-coerciveness. Uh, Property, the idea not only can you possess property as an individual, but you can dispose of it and take the benefit. You can develop it and have that increase. Religious liberty, the state should not coerce belief one way or another. The notion of happiness, now that's a a term that gets misunderstood a lot. The idea here is that you've gotta be left to yourself to pursue those things that would provide satisfaction. the, the constitution talks about securing the blessings of liberty, not liberty in and of itself per se. Also, a natural right would be something like reputation. It'd be terrible to be able to use your property and to engage in a virtuous market, and yet to have somebody uh, chirp behind your back and create real problems to your reputation. And then, of course, marriage. The very foundation is the pre-political institution called marriage. The state must protect that, and marriage, of course, is one man and one woman. That is a creational norm. It's not a Christian thing at all. On the other hand though, if you don't understand those boundaries, we have uh, people pushing for equality of outcomes. That's very different than equality. What that does is foster envy, which is a great sin. Compare this today, what we're seeing. uh, Statism is being fostered, uh, COVID-19 overreach, entitlement and welfare spending healthcare mandates, universal income is being proposed, the cancel culture, shutting down certain kinds of speech, speech zones, speech codes, hate speech regulations, and so forth. Again, we need to have uh, our public square and our structures uh, that have a biblical understanding of these issues, because that provides flourishing for all human beings and that sort of thing. That's the state. What about the church and Christians? they play another role, the roles of mercy and of grace. Again, a notion of the separation of powers or boundaries. Again, compare progressivism. There is an effort exists to push together and consolidate powers so it blurs these things. Understanding these distinctions produces a way forward and this produces a watershed issue concerning redemption. Who saves? Who saves man? Is it the state or is it the son? This is basic stuff. And Chalcedon answers this. How is the state to be uh, conceptualized? Is it a servant or is it a savior? Again, understanding this question as a theological matter will have implications for law and faithful policy. Rightly understood, this will help us going forward to be clear in these categories. How and why? Well, Again, Chalcedon dealt with the natures of Christ, human and divine. If we don't get that right, here's what happens. If the two natures of Christ were confused, it meant that the door would be open to divinizing human nature. And thus, the full expression of that would be the state, potentially making the state divine, a savior. Similarly, if the human nature of Christ were reduced or denied, And then man's incarnate saver would not have the ability to save. He has to assume what he is to save. On the other hand, if Christ's deity were reduced, then he'd have no real saving power. And fourthly, if his humanity and deity were not in true union, the incarnation then would not be real. And thus the distance between God and man would be uh, unbroachable. Remember, Christ is called Emmanuel, God with us. Well, let me give you even one more level of implications here. So Chalcedon affirmed the Christian exclusivism and uniqueness by separating, in principle, the Christian faith from Greek and pagan worldview concepts at that time, particularly concepts concerning the nature and being and the relationship between the divine. It's going to take some while to unpack this, but uh, you'll enjoy it, I think. I'll give you six basic subpoints. Now, throughout these ecclesiastical debates in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, uh, Greek uh, philosophy was ascendant, particularly Stoic and Platonic ideas. Aristotle was basically dormant for the next thousand years or so, but it was Stoic and Platonic ideals. Chalcedon rejected Platonism and Neoplatonism, this dualism. What do I mean by that? a bifurcation between soul and body, no, they should be together. Between faith and reason, no, they should be together. Between heaven and earth, no, they are joined in uh, communion and in the nature of Christ. The idea that Kant put forth between facts and values, no, those things actually go together. There's not a Cartesian divide uh, in that way. So now again, competing worldviews, again, are pushing these things together. Secondly, Chalcedon embraced a distinctively Christian formulation of the state, which enabled flourishing for all. You see in Hellenism, the state was the divine presence on the earth. It itself was this incarnation and there was chain of being being to the higher divine, but not so under the Christian worldview. There's a gap, a metaphysical gap, a boundary uh, between the divine and the created order. And there can be no encounter between them except by grace incarnation in Christ's sense, of course, and by grace. There's no uh, uh, continuity of substance between the divine and the creative order. Again, this would tell us that the state is not a savior, and we need to have uh, principles involved with respect to that. Chalcedon also established that Christianity is exclusive in its claims and worldview and could not be mushed together or merged, uh, syncretism is what it's called technically, with other worldviews because you see it confirmed that the natural does not ascend to the supernatural. This gap remained, and it could only be breached by revelation or by incarnation, by grace. What does this tell us socio-politically? That salvation, therefore, is not by man, not by man's efforts, not by man's institutions. Rather, politics, positive law is not salvific, to put it technically. And so... Uh, this tells us there's boundaries there. The state can't overreach. We need a faithful politic to do this. Second big point, I think, that Chalcedon gives us is by denying this confusion of natures really provided a principal antidote to mysticism. This idea that we merge and morph things together, uh, such as what we see today in gender ideology, what I call um, biosexual alchemy, and that sort of things. Again, we can't be mushing those things together. Uh, Next, uh, we see that Chalcedon prevents any human institution, anything in creation, the king, the state, the court, from rightly ascribing incarnational deity to itself. In other words, wielding ultimate authority, in particular, the authority of revelation, redemption, and rule, or prophet, priest, and king. Only Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Only Christ is the ultimate revelation, the ultimate redeemer, and the ultimate ruler. Now, compare Hegel who influenced a lot. You can trace Hegel to where we are today who said, "'The state is the actually existing realized moral life, "'the divine idea as it exists on earth. "'All earth which the human being possesses, "'all spiritual reality he possesses "'only through the state.'" Well, think about that. You have Hegel talking about spiritual reality. He clearly influenced Marx. Marx took out the religious talk but kept the historical inevitability piece of the philosophy. Enter then the Frankfurt School. Enter progressivism. Enter critical theory. Enter critical race theory. Enter Marcuse and all the stuff that mischief that he created. And then you enter all the other subgroups that are going on uh, incubating in the university, such as uh, woman studies, feminist studies, they are different and the scholars will tell you that. Fat studies, these are are not slurs, this is what they're called, fat studies, ableist studies, uh, all these kinds of things, queer studies and, and all the rest. So that's how we get disunion when we have each person being their own savior and their own divine authority. So what is the way forward? Jesus actually said very little about the church, yet he taught a great deal about God's kingdom, God's rule. And that is what we are to pursue as a matter of priority. He tells us in Matthew chapter six. This kingdom is first and foremost a kingdom of Orthodoxy of creed and communion, and that is our identity. Within that kingdom of the of Christ people, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's Ephesians four. My point being is, as we pursue this and lock arms and put together and articulate and engage a faithful politics, uh, we're not to be engaged in identity politics. We're not to uh, hyphenate ourselves with our tribes, our clans. We're not to engage with intersectionality that pretends to explain our condition via a hierarchy of victimization. In fact, if you continue to tell people they are victims, it'll be increasingly difficult for them to to call them to repentance, including ourselves. If we think of ourselves as victims through the process of intersectionality, we will be less likely to uh, be called to repentance. And we all need repentance daily and so forth. As Tom Wright tells us, the kingdom of God is not from this world, but it is emphatically for this world. And that kingdom has ethical implications. Though it's a theological reality, it has ethical implications. We are to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness or translated justice, same word. This is the robust relational faith of our Christian orthodoxy. It transcends our generation. It transcends our national boundaries. It transcends our ethnic boundaries. It transcends our ecclesiastical preferences and traditions. It transcends our political cycles and it stands in direct opposition to the competitors of critical race theory, progressivism, identity politics, cultural Marxism, cancel culture, gender ideology, queer theory, ableism, fat studies, research justice, epistemic justice, and all the rest. We must be intentional about pursuing that orthodoxy of the kingdom and its context because it sets forth the robust Christian worldview. And that influences our culture, our ethics, and thus our law and policy in which all may flourish, just not those who name the name of Christ alone. You see, I don't want a Presbyterian culture They don't hug enough. I don't want a Pentecostal culture. They hug too much. I don't want a Baptist culture because I happen to enjoy, as many people know at Truth Exchange, some good whiskey and lots of good cigars. I don't want a Roman Catholic culture because my Latin's not good enough. Of course, I'm jesting here in many ways. But the point is, we should pursue and pant after and passionately go after Christian culture, meaning that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and therefore we must not elevate our private preferences into being public precepts. This, I tell you, with respect to faithful politics, this is the way forward. It is the tenets of Christian culture that provide and sustain the justification and the tools for protecting and promoting religious liberty for all associational freedom including the family liberty for all free speech for all the abolition of slavery gladiatorial combat and infanticide are great examples of when christian culture was pursued whether in a minority or in a majority it had great righteous impact think about that the abolition of slavery gladiatorial combat being abolished and of course infanticide That was the Christian kingdom being advanced. You see the redemptive faith of Christian Orthodoxy is a conduit for cultural victory, precisely because God develops his promised covenant along these particular lines. And there are no utopias here, like the undeliverable utopias that are promised over and over again by Marxism and progressivism and cultural Marxism and woke churches. We cannot have national unity, we cannot have national order until we recognize that there never will be a utopia induced uniformity. As Thomas Molnar penned it in 1967, utopia is the perennial heresy. In contrast to these utopian delusions, only a faithful realistic politics rooted and animated by the kingdom of God leads us to justifiably think and act redemptively for the common good, for human flourishing, for God's glory alone. That is the solution to disunion. May God grant us grace, passion, and help us to sing the song sweetly as we convey these truths to a broken culture in need of true redemption. Thank you for your kind attention.